everyone. This is Emily Kalaszewski, Member Programs Lead at the League, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Today's webinar is titled Finance for the Non-Finance Municipal Official. No matter what your role in local government, you are impacted by numerous budget and finance issues every day. The goal of this session is to help non-finance professionals better understand the complicated world of municipal finance. A few notes before we get started. Following the presentation, I will be facilitating a Q&A session with participants. To submit questions, please type them in the chat box on the upper left side of your screen. Following today's session, we will also email any links or slides referenced to all participants. And another note on this, I think based on uh, Tony's preference, um, I'll be interrupting him with questions throughout the presentation as well. So we'll try to keep them timely with the topics that we're covering. So feel free to just keep your questions coming in. And now let me formally introduce our speaker today, Tony Mangini, Deputy Executive Director and COO for the Michigan Municipal League. He's devoted his career to the service of local government, joined the League in 2006 to have an opportunity to focus on the broader policy issues surrounding local government. His tenure with the League began as the Chief Financial Officer, and he assumed his current post in July of 2007. Tony is a regular speaker on a variety of topics affecting local government and plays a key role in training local officials. He's a tireless advocate for local government and frequently testifies to the state legislature on matters relating to local government finance. Thank you, and I'll turn it over to Tony to begin. Thank you, Emily. Appreciate that. Um, you know, I do find uh, this is the first time I've, I've covered this topic uh, in webinar format. So uh, I know in person, questions seem to help move this along and, and provide some greater clarity. Uh, the goal today is not to make you into a, a finance officer. Hopefully you have somebody uh, in your community that, that does that, and I encourage you to lean on them for the deeper answers. But the goal, again, is to give you a, a broader context so maybe you understand a little better the nuances of municipal finance. So we're going to go through a bunch of things today, um, obviously relatively quickly. Uh, I think we're, we're shooting for around an hour today. Um, we're going to talk about governmental fund types um, and fund-based accounting, which is something that uh, we use in government, which is different than business. So even if you run your own business, uh, some of the things you're going to see in government are going to be different. We'll do a, a quick overview of financial statements, um, understanding those. Again, because in government, it's a little different. You'll see that. We'll talk about uh, what types of expenses are allowed as a local government do a walkthrough of municipal budgeting and setting tax rates, things like that. And then uh, we will also talk about uh, revenue sources. And we're really gonna focus in on two for the most part because they are our biggest revenue sources, bills being property taxes and revenue sharing, have you understand uh, what those come from and how those work. Talk about some long range planning and things you should be thinking about as a community. And we're gonna close with, with rate setting because I think that that's an important thing for local officials to understand, and, I, and it's something that generally isn't the most popular thing to, to talk about. So with that, let's get rolling. So in local government, um, we use a fund-based accounting system. And the reason we do that is unlike a business where everything kind of rolls up into one thing, we have a lot of different things that we do in local government with differing revenue streams and different purposes for which we do those. So we're basically broken into three types of funds. Our governmental funds, which is usually where you're gonna put most of your focus and emphasis as a local official. Um, general fund being the area where you'll see most things come through. 
special revenue funds or things like your your major and local street funds. That would be a special revenue fund. Um, debt service fund, you'll pay debt out of capital projects. Some of these things are, are, are fairly obvious. And proprietary funds are, are things like your, if you have a water and sewer fund, that's an enterprise fund. They tend to run more like a business and the accounting rules are, are more like a business. And then you have funds that you're responsible for, but they're not city dollars, things like your pension funds and things like that, um, where you have a duty to, to maintain those, but no access to those funds. Most of the conversation today is going to really focus around our governmental funds, um, other than the rate setting part at the end. But uh, that is, again, where you do most of the governmental work that pe people think about when they think about what their local government's doing for them. So why do we have uh, different accounting rules? You know, might think that we would just run this, the accounting would be exactly the same as it is for a local business, um, but that's not the case. When you think about um, what the, why does a business exist, right? It exists for the purposes of, of making money, for their shareholders, things like that. Local government has a different focus. Local government is about the services they provide, and we're trying to segregate those things into areas that make sense. So that accountability is, is higher. Um, and so we use something called fund-based accounting, and, and, that, and it allows us to segregate those activities. It's almost like a, a business within a business in some respects. Um, and the rules are different in terms of when we recognize revenues and things like that. So um, got ahead of myself a little bit. So again, what are some of the, the key differences? That recognition of, of revenue and expenses um, in a business, when you bill somebody, you, you, you essentially recognize that revenue. In government, for the most part, you're going to recognize that revenue when you actually receive those dollars. And expenses, on the other hand, you'll recognize when you incur them the same as a business. They call that a, a modified accrual thing. Um, in a business, you're going to look at those assets that you might have, and you're thinking about them as revenue-producing things. In government, this is really about service provision rather than future cash flow. So there's not rates of return and things like that that you would look at as a local government. And again, that fund accounting allows us to have that greater uh, accountability and things like that. So GASB are the accounting rules, and that stands for the Governmental Accounting Standards Board. And, and the one I'm only going to talk about one of them and because it affects the statements, the financial statements that you see as a local official. Um, and it, that's Statement 34. And Statement 34 really, for the most part, affects uh, the statements that you see presented in the audit. The, the statements you're going to see reporting on throughout the year are the fund-based statements, but it's important that you understand that you, some of the things you'll see in the audit will have both the fund-based and it will have statements that are produced pursuant to, to Statement 34. Um, some of the things that Statement 34 sets forth um, are important things to understand, um, one of them being the, the management discussion and analysis. So when you get your audit every year, one of the things that you'll find in there is a several-page narrative that is prepared by the management of the community. So it's probably prepared by your finance director, or your, your city manager, perhaps, uh, maybe even the, the mayor, um, that talks about what has happened. It is the opportunity for the city to kind of tell the story of, of the finances and also the things that are affecting that. Uh, that is something that is worth your time to read. So when you get the financial statements and uh, 
after the presentation's over and you're, now you have this in your hand, I would encourage you to take the time to read those because it does set that framework and does give you that additional information um, that really will give you greater insight into some of the challenges and opportunities, the good and the bad that happened in your community related to that. So be sure to do that. Uh, 34 also set forth a lot of the other basic structures within the statement. So the information you see there, a lot of that is being reported pursuant to, to statement 34. Um, what you'll see then again is two types of financial statements. I'm going to show you examples of both. Um, one is the fund based. And again, this is really what you're operating the community on a day-to-day -day basis. You're going to be going to the fund based statements. When you budget, you budget on a fund basis. Um, when you're getting those reports, you're doing it on a fund basis. And, and so we'll show examples of that. And then the government wide was an attempt um, by the GASB to pull all of the governmental activities into to one statement. And so these government wide statements are something that you will typically only see as part of your audit reporting. And it is not what you're managing to. You're not looking back to that as your guidepost for, for the day-to-day -day management of the community. So first thing I want to show you is the statement of revenues, expenditures, and changes in fund balances. If we were a private business, this would be your income statement. Um, and this is fund-based, and we're reporting here on this particular one. This is a uh, an older statement from the, the city of Alpena, but it's still relevant in how it's reported. Uh, revenues are generally at the top, uh, expenditures down below. You can see it's segregated different funds. We have general fund, major street fund, local street fund. So obviously, expenditures and revenues related to the major streets roll through that fund. They don't go through, through other funds. There are restrictions on some of these funds. So a, a major and local street are special revenue funds. So they have special rules and a special purpose, which is why those dollars go there. And so what you can do with major street dollars are spend them on major streets. There's some provision in law that allows some minor transfers between those, those road funds, but you can't use that for um, other reports, uh, I'm sorry, for other purposes. Um, as opposed to the general fund, that has very little uh, restrictions at all um, on it. And so you could you can send money from the general fund to the major street fund, but not the other way around. Just keep in mind as, you, as you're managing things like that. Um, your balance sheet is, if you sort of think about what is the financial uh, condition of the city from the the day they they founded the place until the day the statement was issued, that's essentially your balance sheet. It, it is the accumulation of everything, and that's where we report our assets, our liabilities, and fund balances. Um, and in local business, you have assets, liabilities, and owner's equity, essentially. So fund balance is, is akin to that. It's different in some ways. Um, but that is something that you'll see reported. Most of the time, on a on a month to month basis, you'll probably be looking at your um, the the uh, statement of activities that, that we were just talking about, because again, that's where you're going to get your financial reporting information. <clears throat> when we talk about the statement of activities uh, in a financial wide, this again is akin to to a financial statement, but it takes all of those funds that we just talked about and combines them for a comprehensive look at, at the city. Um, and that is something that is reported typically in your audit, and, and you'll see that. And then on the 
statement of net assets would be akin to the balance sheet. So if you're looking to sort of like try and reconcile those those two things, those are thought about in the same types of way. Um, they're put into these three categories. We have governmental activities, which is, again, most of the things that we do as a government. Business type activities for most of you will probably be limited to a water and sewer fund. You may be a community that has an electric plant or some other thing that would also be there. But for the most part, water and sewer is the most common business type activity you'll see. And then a component unit might be something like a DEA or, or a library or something like that that gets reported on through. And this gets presented again in your, in your audit as part of your uh, financial report at the end of the year. So one of the things that I think people get confused on is the limits on expenditures. Um, and there's a lot of language here that really cooks down to, to a few key points. And that is in Michigan, um, you have to find authority in statute, your constitution, or, or in some cases the charter, if, if permitted by statute, um, to, to do anything, okay? In, in other states around the country, um, local government can do anything they're not prohibited from doing. In Michigan, it's the opposite. You have to find the legal authority to do something. So you can't just go to the voters and say, we would like you to approve us doing something unless you point to specific statutory authority to do those things. Um, we don't have any inherent powers. Um, we only have those granted to us by constitution and by statute. Um, so that's why you look at things like the Home Rule Cities Act, for example, or the you know de creation of a DDA or things like that. You, you look to those statutes to create those things and do that. Now, the charter, the local charter, is something that is very important. Um, but the charter cannot grant additional authority. The charter can be more restrictive, and I'll give you a good example of that. Um, under the Home Rule Cities Act, a, a community could have a millage rate that not to exceed 20 mills. Um, but the charter, which is something that was adopted by the local residents, um, could make it less than that. So you might have a charter limitation of 10 or 15. So it can be more restrictive, but it could not allow you to go to 25, for example. So keep that in mind as, as you look to what the ultimate authority is. You really need to check all of these areas as you're formulating um, decisions about what you're going to do as a, as a community. Where does that authority come from? Tony, can you answer something. a question? Sure. How do authorities fit into the finance scheme? Are they separate entities, an extension of a city? So, yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, are considered to be more of, a, of like a component unit. And so they have separate boards. They have separate authority, but they're creations of the, of the city typically. And, and typically you'll see them reported as, as a, depending on how big they are, they may have a separate report that they issue as well, but they're also typically reported under the community as, as that component unit. Hopefully that made some sense. Um, so allowable expenses, I always, this is one that's more fun when we're in person because we can kind of go question by question and, and do the, uh, the straw poll. But um, when you look down the list of some of these things, some of these things feel like something 
you want to do, you maybe even feel like you need to do, um, and it makes sense to do in a lot of ways. But the one thing they all have in common is they're all not allowed under the law. Um, we can't make donations um, to a, a church, for example. We can't pay for you know funerals or give money to private ambulances and things like that. Donations to Little League. Uh, these are all things that we're prohibited from doing. Now, there are ways to partner with some of these organizations. Little League would be a great example where you could certainly enter into an agreement with a local organization like a Little League to provide those recreational services and do things. But what you can't do is just write them a check and say, we appreciate the great work you're doing here in town. Here's, here's $10,000 to support the program. That's a donation. We can't do that. So some of it is in the how you approach it to do, but it's important to understand because, you know, these are, these are things that, that get you in trouble um, with the best of intentions. And so take some time to do that um, and understand some of those things. We've got another question on authorities. Is there a requirement that authorities be separately reported in order to receive LCSA funds? Um, hmm. You know what? I'm going to have to circle back on that. I don't think so, um, but I'd hate to give you a, a definitive on that. So let me uh, – we have the, the attendee list. I will get a, a more definitive answer on that one. Yep, we'll make sure to circle back. And, and one more question. What about a local 5013C3 business association membership? So if you're purchasing a membership, that's not a donation, right? So an exchange for services, an arm's length transaction is different than a donation to something. So if there was a reason the city decided to, to you know, be a member of the chamber or you know, something like that is different than, than that donation. So there's a service exchange there. You're, you know, the, you are all a member of the league, which is an association, you know, we're technically charitable. That's not the issue. It's this idea of donating money um, or giving it for some private use that the city isn't a, the, the benefit and party. Okay, we've got a few more questions that have come in uh, around this. Fire topic. away, fire away. Can a, perfect. Can a city have or hold a fund that consists of residents' donations to use for otherwise unallowable funds? Uh, I think the answer to that question is no. Um, you cannot accept a donation for something that is you're legally prohibited from doing. What you can do, I mean, which is a one-off of this question, if if I wanted to donate uh, money to the city and said, I want this money to be only used for park improvements, the city may, and I stress may, accept that with those conditions if they choose to. They're not compelled to. So if the city didn't want to have money earmarked for park improvements, they could say, thank you, we're going to decline that donation. But if you accept the, that donation with that caveat, then you are now limited to using it only for that purpose. All right. Uh, another question. Can we use the use? Can, let's see. Can we, I, I think the question is, can we allow can the use of our meeting space to a 501c3 
uh, which I believe they would typically charge for. Um, so could they allow that 501c3 to use the me meeting space and waive the cost? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, so part of this, I think, comes back to this idea of, you know, community purpose and things like that. So to the extent that, that there's a community benefit to the, them utilizing that space, I think that's something that, that we see be done that that is a it's it's kind of a one-off on that and and um but i that is something that that we see that i don't think gets you into trouble now i think one of the questions you have to ask yourself is can you wrap it up in that community purpose thing you know are they doing work in the community that you see of benefit to the community um and there's a lot of ways to do this some of this is in the the how not the what you know partnering with uh, you know, if the, if the, the local JCs are going to be, uh, put on a fireworks show at the community festival, if we get to have those again one day, um, and you're partnering with them to do that, that's different than making a donation to the JC. So again, I, I think some of it is if you're, if you're doing it for a public purpose, you can quickly get to that public purpose as a partnership and enter into more of an arm's length transaction, as opposed to this idea of donating, donating money. All right, a few more questions. Can a municipality form their own 5013C for grant writing purposes and funding? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I, I want to say okay, I want to say that I, I don't know that they can, but I can research. We can get back to you on that one too. Yep, we can we can definitely pull all of these questions from the chat, and we'll get back to folks individually. One more question before we move on: Would a sponsorship be different than a donation? For example, sponsoring a conference or event. I think a sponsorship again comes back. It's is in line with the donation uh, aspect of that. In my in my view, um, I think it'd be better to you know it, it, figure out a way to do that. It's more of an arm's length. What's the what's the value? What's what's the community buying? I mean, maybe we're buying advertising space at a something. I mean, there's probably a way to to perfect that. Um, and I think, again, if you think about this, of looking at this through a lens of what's the public good here I'm trying to, to get at, then it might point you in a direction of a way to do this in a way that doesn't get you in trouble. For the most part, if right, we, I you know, I mean, it, go ahead, Emily, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were finished with your answer. I said, we're going to go ahead and move on. I think we've got oh, more okay. slides to cover. We, we got a few. So I want to talk a little yeah. bit about budgeting and I'll, this, this, um, what I want, I guess if there's an overlying message about budgeting, it'd be this, uh, the budget isn't something you do, uh, in a workshop in the spring and then don't think about it again. Right. Um, and it's not just about how much money do we have to spend? It should really be your plan of operation. Okay, and you should think about it in that context. Um, you know, in Michigan, we talked about those different funds. You're only required to adopt budgets for your general fund and your special revenues funds. Um, that doesn't mean that you cannot adopt budgets for these other things. You certainly can, and probably, uh, even if not formally adopted, should go through that exercise of understanding what the costs, uh, what you're spending in these various areas. So it's definitely something to, to do, but as far as the legal requirements, we're only limited there. Um, the budget is something that 
you know, take several months to do. And again, I encourage you not to take that time to do it and, and then forget about it. But as, and I'm not sure how many elected officials we have on the call today, but to an elected official, it might appear this thing sort of magically appears. I think in a lot of the communities, what you're going to find is this is work that's already underway um, in, in a lot of communities or will start very shortly where they're getting requests in from the department. They're having conversation. You know, they're starting to put this stuff together in a way to do that. So all this work that goes in up front precedes the ability for the council to adopt and, and execute the budget. Um, you know, some of the things you have to include in the budget uh, as you adopt it, you have to present your prior year actuals, um, revenue and expenditures, the year you're in right now, uh, estimated revenues and expenditures, and then of course the year you're proposing. And this next thing is important too, you have to be projecting not to be in deficit. You cannot adopt a budget where you're projected to be in deficit. Um, not usually an issue, but you know things are tough sometimes, and and that's something that when you're looking at this, you need to be thinking about when when you're going to do that kind of thing. You should also be thinking about things. You know, are there other deficiencies or contingencies you want to provide for? Making sure those things are in there, and what other data is in that, but should be in that budget that is of relevance to to officials and others to understand what are the needs of of the community. So th this is just a very simplistic, really cooked down um, presentation of the budget, what it's supposed to look like in terms of what we talked about a second ago, the actuals, the estimated, and the proposed budgets. So one of the things that, I, I, this is some things just to understand. So, you know, you have your budget and that's your document that you're looking at and has certain requirements to it. But then you, you adopt the, the General Appropriations Act. That is really the authority to spend money out of that budget. And it's, it's akin to when we see uh, the federal government or the state government having a shutdown. It's because they've not done this, right? You need to have that legal authority to spend money. And if that budget's not adopted, theoretically, on the last day of the fiscal year, that's what these shutdowns are all about. They don't have the legal authority to do that. Um, you know, the budget document itself is more of an informational package, and it's the authority comes from that that Appropriations Act that that's being put in there. And then this is important, right? This is that legal authority that we talked about, and it doesn't mean that when the council adopts the budget that the administration or the department heads now have the, the authority to run out and buy everything that's in that budget, right? You may have rules in your charter. You may have a purchasing policy. You may include in the adoption resolution um, things that you want to see brought back to the council. For example, you might adopt a budget that has 50 employees in it, um, and someone quits two months into the fiscal year and you may say, even though those positions were budgeted, any additional hire, including replacement hires, need to come back before the council for approval before filling them. That's that's an example of something. Or capital purchases in excess of you know ten thousand dollars need to be brought back for approval. You can put additional checks and balances on and beyond what is legally required to to do some of that stuff. 
Um, other things that should be included in there, your property tax levy, uh, you want to make sure your revenues and things are in conformance with the uniform charter accounts. That's something that you'll be leaning on your finance professionals to make sure is happening. Um, again, if there are specific roles and responsibilities designated to certain individuals or positions, we should include those. Um, if there's an amendment or uh, adoption process, let's do that. Again, what is that legal level of control? We didn't talk about that, but I'll, what, what the legal level of control is, when you adopt a budget, you don't adopt a budget typically, you could, uh, at the fund level. If you adopt a budget at the fund level, your accountability is to the fund level. So that would mean if the general fund budget was a million dollars, and uh, we're only responsible for staying within a million dollars and the general fund. If it's to the department level, and let's say everybody is, um, you know, police, fire, DPW, all have budgets that, that roll up into that general fund budget. And we say the accountability is going to be at the department level. That allows that administrator, uh, the police chief, for example, to between light items say, well, I, I don't need as many bullets, but I need more ticket books. And I'm going to, you know, if those are different line items. I'm being a little bit silly, but um, move money within that, that departmental thing. Um, you could adopt it at the line item level, which means they have to come in on budget for every line item. While that raises the accountability, it creates some administrative headaches because every time they get to the limit of a line item, so again, let's say office supplies is, you know, $200 and the line item below that is, is under budget, um, they have to come back and get a budget amendment to go buy some more pencils, right? So higher level of accountability, a lot more administrative headaches. So thinking about at what level you want that accountability and control is part of how that budget should be adopted. You can still budget down to the line item and adopt the legal level of control at a higher level. So that's, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too, so you can understand. And certainly you can ask questions uh, of department heads and the administration to understand things like that um, without, having that legal accountability be there. Um, there's also things that you're going to, you want to apply some common sense to, right? Because uh, I always like to use snow plowing as an example. Um, if on December 31st, you know, we've had a relatively dry winter and all of a sudden it snows every day in the month of January. And on January 20th, we run out of snow plowing uh, allocations. My guess is we're still going to plow the street on January 21st. And so it's not at all uncommon to have, uh, you know, the department present, you know, maybe at the end of the season, hey, winter was way crazier than we thought. We're presenting you at a budget amendment that reflects the last two crazy months of snow plowing. Here's the change we've made later in the year to try to accommodate that. So we're still going to come in under budget um, on a, in a grander sense, but we had to make some of these accommodations to keep things going. So there's some some reality that lays on top of some of these things as well. I always like to talk to people too uh, when doing this particular session. You know, everyone has a role in the process. And uh, I'll say this, even though it might not be a popular thing to say, um, it's not a, a council person's job to be the finance director nor is it the finance director's job to be the council person. And everybody plays a role uh, in this process and has a different level 
of accountability, responsibility, and, and questions that they, they want to have. I think it's important that everyone in the process trust each other in the process to do their jobs. Um, you know, the council is going to set that policy tone. They're going to set that overall authority. Um, they need to, to then trust and hold accountable um, those individuals who they've tasked with, with carrying those things out, but give them the ability to do that. And, you know, one of the things, too, that I, I, I like to talk about when we talk about budgeting and, and the monitoring of it, the goal isn't just to come in under budget. And, and I'm going to go back to the very first slide that I was talking about with budgeting. It's an operating plan for the city. So if we said we were going to do uh, 10 miles of, of road improvements, we'll keep talking about roads because it's one of people's favorite subjects, um, and we did five miles, but we're under budget, is that a win? And I think the answer is no. So I think when we think about accountability, we want to think not just about the, the financial accountability. That's obviously very important. But get back to that plan aspect. Are we achieving the objectives that we set forth when we adopted the budget? And there may be really good reasons that we didn't. You know, again, maybe the roof blew off a of city hall or something, and we had to use money for different purposes. These are discussions that should be going on throughout the year, um, and everybody should be engaged at the appropriate level of, of understanding where we are with some of that stuff. So, um, again, I, I, like I said, think about it, uh, you know, as a council person, no one has an expectation you're looking at this stuff every day. If you're getting monthly reports, you should be looking at it every month. If you're not getting those reports, at least quarterly, I would hopefully, I would encourage monthly, but if you're not getting at least quarterly, you need to ask why. Um, you should be getting that information so that you can do those high-level reviews. As an administrator or, or the finance director, uh, they have a responsibility to report that data and to explain if there's variances as to what's going on. Uh, those are those are all things that need to be happening um, as we do that. Um, you know, what types of stuff gets reported? You know, again, the balance sheet is something that it's nice to have, but it's not showing your really what's happening throughout the year. You're going to lo look a lot more at your revenue expenditures versus budget. Um, and I always like to encourage you to get context because the number in and of itself may not be as helpful as as you might think it would be, you know, what's, what's the good things? What are the bad things? Are there things we have to do or had to do? Understanding what those things are are really important. Um, so here's just some, again, very simplistic, but it, it gives you some context. And, and when you look at some of these things, because some things look skewed and you might say, well, gosh, why are we at 100% of something two months into the year? Uh, the answer might be because that's something that occurs in the second month and we're done. The answer might be we're going to be horribly over budget in this line and we've got to have a different conversation. So understanding what it is and some simple explanations that can be provided, I think, are, are very helpful. Um, and, and you should want to know what's going on with some of these things. You know, if we bought a lot of capital uh, in a, like buying police cars, things like that, these could all be things that drive a number that doesn't look like it make, making sense when I project them out. Um, looking at different ways uh, to make it easier to understand. You know, some people will, will report that, like a prorated budget, which is just kind of giving you an idea, hey, we're halfway through the year. For most line items, we probably should be about halfway uh, in the expenditure line. And in some cases, we're going to be in excess of that. And it's because 
there was some extraordinary item or a timing situation. But knowing what those are gives you greater comfort as a as an official understanding some of these things. Um, this is the same thing, just looking at it as a percent of budget as opposed to a dollar amount of budget. They're all different little techniques, and everyone kind of has their their favorite way of looking at things. Um, it's not a right or a wrong necessarily, but as long as it's conveying the information that you need to stay appropriately and properly informed, um, then it's doing its job. Um, one of the things that I also like to encourage people to do is to have a, a, a fund balance policy. Um, and a lot of communities have them. A lot of communities say, you know, what is that? And, and really what that is, is an agreement amongst the officials to say, when is it we're going to dip into fund balance? Um, what's the purposes for which we as a community think that's an appropriate thing to do, right? It shouldn't be just we were bad at budgeting. We should have a, an understanding of why we want to do that. And so it's really something that lends itself almost to its own discussion, um, even outside of budget, because I think most people can kind of get to a spot and think about it in your home life. You know, when do you when do you go to the bank account and when do you say we're going to wait on something and things like that? It's the same kind of approach. It gives you an idea. It allows you to think about, you know, what are the goals of the community? What are the things that are important to us? Are we trying to, you know, accumulate money for some purpose? Um, understanding what your community is. Are you an older community that has aging infrastructure? Maybe you need to have a greater amount of fund balance. That's another question we get a lot. What's the right amount of fund balance? And it really varies. And it varies for lots of different reasons. Age of infrastructure, is, it could be one. Um, you know, there's there's capital projects that you're trying to get done, just a variety of things. Maybe you're just concerned about the economic climate and you want to have some ability to have some cushion uh, in there. Those are all appropriate um, and different answers for different communities. And it really comes down to everyone getting on the same page uh, within the community to to draft something that, that we can all look to as, our, as sort of our guidepost on, on doing some of this stuff. So later when we're having conversations, well, we can just jump into fund balance for that. Everyone can kind of go, well, remember when we put this together? It, it's not that you're, it, it, it handcuffs, you could amend it. It doesn't stop you from doing something if that's something that you wanted to do. But it does give you that kind of anchor point to remind you of the value judgments you made when you put it together. So I want to talk, uh, now about basically our two biggest um, uh, revenue sources for most communities. Now, I don't know if I have any income tax communities on here uh, on the call or not, but there's 24 of those, I think, in the state. Um, everybody else is, for the most part, a property tax-based uh, community, um, and probably about half or more of their revenues coming via property taxes. So, you know, at its core, uh, property taxes seem pretty simple. You apply a millage rate to a value, and, and it seems pretty straightforward. Um, in Michigan, however, we have uh, not one, but two constitutional amendments that affect uh, how we levy property taxes. And they don't work very well together. They don't play nice. And so it's important that you understand, at least at a high level, kind of how these things work. And I'll, I'll try to do that and probably confuse as much as explain, but do my best. So Hedley was adopted in the 70s, and um, Hedley tried to control revenue growth um, in communities by adjusting millage rates. And the theory being they didn't want runaway uh, growth. And you know, at the time, we were seeing a lot of 
property tax growth, and they said we need to put some limits on this stuff. And um, so they said we're going to try to control this by adjusting millage rates. And if millage rates, I'm sorry, so if, if revenues go up faster than inflation, we'll adjust millage rates to, to roll that back. And that worked well for a while, but then what they realized was happening is um, they looked at the city in aggregate. So some property owners might have saw significant gains. Some saw relatively flat gains, but in average, they were within inflation, and, and so it worked in aggregate, but some homeowners were being having difficulties. And in some communities that had some pretty unique circumstances, maybe they had lakefront property that was really growing up or things like that, People were saying, gosh, I'm being taxed out of my home. I can't even afford to live in the home that, that, that I've lived in for the last 30 years. So when Prop A was passed, and Prop A did lots of different things. That's where we went to the 6% sales tax and on and on. Um, but specific to the property tax growth, it said, we're going to manage that by looking at it on a parcel-by-parcel -parcel basis, and we're going to limit the growth to inflation. And that's where we have this idea of taxable value as opposed to the equalized value. Um, and you get that gap that when you sell your home and someone buys your home, they say, gosh, I'm paying a lot more in taxes now. That's the, that gap created by proposal A. And in theory, both of these proposals should limit us to inflation. Um, in reality, what's happened when they, when they wrote the implementation legislation to, uh, take these constitutional amendments and put them into law because what hap when you vote on a constitutional amendment, you vote on 150 words, it then gets uh, thrown to the legislature who creates legislation to implement that. They created a math problem that causes a lot of issues. First thing that happens now is no matter how far your property values fall, um, they reset at those lower values and can only increase at inflation. So what we saw during the Great Recession is some communities lost upwards of 50% of their taxable value. Those values were then locked in at, at these historically low levels and can only increase by inflation. So there's no catch-up provision. I'm often asked, when, when do we get back to where we were? When do we catch up? And the answer is never. Um, and the second thing that happens, um, when we talked about that pop-up value, when Prop A was adopted, um, one of the things, one of the quote-unquote promises was taxing authorities, cities, schools, like, would, they'd have this deferred growth. You wouldn't see the growth right away, but eventually you get the benefit of this growth when that property sold. But what they did is when they wrote the implementation legislation, they included those values back in the Headley calculation. What that has the effect of doing is requiring a Headley rollback that negates the pop-up growth. So we have a system that in its absolute best performing year can grow at inflation, even if the year before it dropped by 20%, 30%, pick a number, it makes no, it makes no difference. So it makes it impossible for communities that are built out to grow in any meaningful way. Um, communities that can build something new have some opportunity for some new growth, but on and beyond that, it's very problematic. So uh, it's important to understand that, you know, what, is, what does that look like? Are we in a, 
a growth mode? Are we in a recessionary mode? If so, that could have some pretty negative impacts. I think we're still trying to see what's going to happen with COVID and will, will we see declines on that? I think right now residential values are looking fairly strong. Um, some communities that maybe have large commercial or large office, uh, I think maybe have cause to be a bit more nervous right now. Um, we'll see what those values look like uh, coming out the other side of this stuff. So um, that's, a, that's a big limitation on our, on our property tax stuff. As it relates to personal property taxes, personal property taxes are taxes essentially on the equipment um, that businesses have. A few years back, we took away industrial personal property and we get those reimbursements now from, uh, from the state to do some of that stuff. We are now coming um, up on our implementation of what they're calling the dynamic formula. So that was frozen for the first several years of its implementation, and we will be phasing in what they call the dynamic, which essentially means they're gonna to start to recognize if businesses have moved from some one community to another. So if you're a community that has had businesses relocate, this may begin to affect you. It'll be very minimal this year, but um, that is something that is uh, just gonna to start to be implemented. So something you should be aware of, and, and talk to your finance director about your uh, particular circumstances on that. And then um, personal property is just something that is constantly being talked about uh, in Lansing as a potential, you know, quote unquote reform, um, where they'd like to see some change and potential elimination of additional classes, things like that. So this is something that uh, at the league we pay a lot of attention to. Chris Hackbarth does uh, a, a lot of work on this, probably not, certainly not a week goes by that he's not talking to someone about this, probably not a day goes by, but, um, that's something we'll continue to pay attention to, but I would encourage you, depending on your circumstances, to, to pay attention to as well. Um, so I guess I actually covered a lot of some of this stuff here. You know, if you are at your heavy maximum, you, you uh, that's the highest you can go uh, right now, unless you do a heavily override. And so the, if your charter limit is 20 and because of you've had growth greater than inflation, you're, you may have rolled back to say 17 mils. Or, so that becomes your new charter limit in all, uh, for all reasons. And then the only way to go back to that 20 is to actually get a, a vote of the people in your community. So you can go back to your charter max uh, with a vote of the people, but absent that, that heavy rollback is, is the equivalent of your charter maximum. And so that's something to, to be aware of as well. And any other millage that you choose to levy, and there are a handful out there, requires you to, to point to that statutory authority. So keep that in mind as well. You cannot just go to your community and say, we want to levy five mills for roads, unless you can point to statutory authority to do that. Um, what, what some communities have done is within their charter limit is earmark. Um, let's say they were at 20 mills max, they're levying 10 and they say, we want to levy an additional five of our 20. Um, and with the voters approve this, we agree to limit it to uh, roads, for example. Um, that is something you can do. And some communities have done things similar to that. So this graph is just a quick illustration of me talking for the last five minutes or so, trying to describe what happens with the, the Headley uh, Prop A and the decline situation. So if you think about that blue line as inflationary growth, um, that's and, and nothing else had happened, 
that would sort of be the trajectory you would have saw your revenues from taxes uh, proceed. And then you can look at that bottom line and think about that is what happened during the Great Recession. You saw these declines that occurred over a number of years, um, bottomed out in most places around 2012. And, and now you go back on that inflationary growth line. Well, as you can see, there's this tremendous gap between those two lines. And you can also see that gap doesn't close. Because again, the, the, that inflation for your expenditure box never changed. It, the only thing that's changed is your revenue line has diminished rapidly with no ability to change that, okay? And it doesn't change because even with the popped up values, if you will, they are negated by the Headley rollback part. So it's a horrible system. It's something, again, that we're working very hard on as well, trying to get some reforms around this that will at least allow uh, some of that upward mobility that was a, that was present pre-Proposal uh, A. Headley allowed those rates to go up and down. Um, and again, that popped up value was supposed was not supposed to be part of that Headley calculation. It was an add-on later. So those are a couple of things that we're trying to address um, from more of a policy perspective. But you should understand as a local official when you think about your, your property taxes. Second biggest uh, revenue stream that I think is important for us to talk about and understand is revenue sharing. Um, in Michigan, we have two revenue sharing sources. One is constitutional, um, one is statutory. Constitutional is very straightforward. Um, it's distributed on a per capita basis. Um, a portion of the sales tax of the first four cents. Uh, two, of the, two of the six cents that we love, we go straight to schools. The, so when usually we talk about this, we're talking about the four cents. Statutory um, used to literally be, have a formula provided for in statute, and it sought to be the, you know, great equalizer, if you will, because it took into account a lot of different factors that recognize that not all communities are equal. Some communities have more ability to raise money locally, they have greater taxable values and things like that. So revenue sharing leveled the playing field to some degree. Revenue sharing has not been fully funded um, since 2002. Um, they have diverted about $7 billion or so away from local government to, to fund local government, I'm sorry, to fund state government um, to address their own budgetary concerns. So they essentially pass their problem on down to us. And so statutory is a little bit of a misnomer because we haven't followed that formula for almost two decades now. And that has created a lot of disparity and, and, and things like that. Right now we're at about, I think it's $700 million a year um, in lost revenue to, that's not being fully funded um, as provided for by statute. So another area that we try to focus on um, at the league right now, I think revenue sharing is, uh, you, you can get an idea where we're going with that. We don't see any you know big cuts on the horizon at the moment. But you do need to understand that we are not getting what was part of our original revenue funding scheme, um, and that has had significant impacts on communities of all sizes. There's a couple links here, and I know we send this presentation out. Um, one talks is, is a very broad resource page. The second one, if you want to find what your community has, either has received or is expected to receive, um, you can go in there and click on that. You select your county, you select your community, and it uh, 
it will show you what you can expect uh, as a community. So that's a great resource to have there as well. Um, there are some things you're required to do um, as part of this stuff. And uh, there's some reporting. There's a citizen's guide you're required to have, a performance dashboard, um, debt service reports. These are all uh, documents that are supposed to be available for your, your citizens to fully understand what's going on in your community. At this point, um, it's probably a safe bet to say all of you are doing this because we're notified when communities are not getting those done and are not getting the revenue sharing. And the best of my knowledge, we're not hearing from Treasury right now. So I think most of you are probably in good speed with, with this stuff. But just know that there are some things that need to happen uh, annually to do that. I want to do quickly, and I know we're, we're uh, as usual, I talk too long, but so I'm going to try to get through the rest of this stuff. But I want to just give a quick uh, pitch to say, you know, you need to be thinking about long-term forecasting. And um, it doesn't have to be super fancy to be effective and give you some idea. But you got to understand where you're going on a longer horizon than just the next 12 months. And so just some simple assumptions here, right? $5 million general fund budget, you got revenues increasing at 1% a year, expenditures increasing at 3% a year, and fund balance is 500000 So on the face of it, um, things don't seem that that bad. You know, they got a few bucks in the bank. Re you know, revenues aren't growing quite as fast as expenditures are projected to, but things probably are going to be okay. But when you, you plot that out and you sort of look at it graphically, it, it starts to come into focus that, you know, maybe this problem is a little bigger than we see. You can see you get out about five years what that simple shortfall does uh, in terms of things. And, and you can see the gap widening. And when you look at fund balance, you go from a situation of having, you know, $500,000 positive fund balance to having a $500,000 negative fund balance uh, just in that five-year period. So, if you're looking ahead just a little bit, right, you can start to take manageable bites out of the problem. So let's just say in a $5 million budget, we start looking for $50,000 a year, which is less than 1% of that budget. Um, and we use that as a target to try to make some changes to what we're doing here. Again, just projecting those out, you can see how that starts to change. But look what happens to fund balance now by just making that 1% accommodation. So it's not ideal. We're starting to dip into our fund balance, but you can see we're still in a positive circumstance uh, five years out. And it, and you could look at this and say, you know what, so maybe we got to get a little bit more aggressive in year three and four to prevent that from happening. But when you think about cutting 50000 from $5 million, it doesn't seem impossible task to do for sure. What if we don't do anything except to percent, uh, prevent the deficit um, in any one year, right? And you start to see, so one of the things I like to point out about this, if you see sharp lines on a graph, that probably is a bad thing, and it probably is a full council chambers, because that means you're having some really uncomfortable conversations, um, and you're making some big changes here. You, you also are working away, you have no working capital um, when you do some of these things, and you want to avoid doing that. And, and so, again, just sort of lay these things on top of each other. If you think about the idea, if I did nothing, we're, we're $500,000 in the hole. If I'm only going to take the bare minimum action and I'm not going to take it until it happens, I'm making some tough decisions in years four and five just to get back to zero, which is not where you ever want to find yourself. But if you sort of make this into a more manageable circumstance, 
it does become something that you can have rational conversations about and do it over time and maintain your financial integrity. So, so again, very quick pitch, but I think that's something important to be thinking about. Um, when you do this stuff, the other thing that's important to do is be very realistic. Uh, avoid the one-time fixes. If it's a one-time problem, apply a one-time fix. If it's a structural problem, you do a structural fix. You know, everyone should understand the assumptions that the forecast is made under as well. And, and I'm, and I'm going to end with the first thing I said right, about the being realistic. The easiest thing to do is to say, well, how about instead of 1% growth, we say 2% growth. Oh, look at how pretty the numbers are now. If you don't think it's 2%, don't put 2% in there. You just, you're going to convince yourself there's not a problem that is there and you got to, you got to take those actions early for it to have meaning. So, so avoid the temptation to do that. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, you know, again, trends may be uh, the indicator of what's going on in the future. And you might look at things and, and uh, say everything looks like it always did. Things are good. But you also got to think about it in different contexts, right? So right now you look at this and you say, gosh, pretty stable place here. We've had the same number of employees for the last five years. Uh, and you say, that's great. We're, we're really holding the line here. But then you might look at it and say, well, we're losing residents. And so... If I look at this, how many employees do I have per number of residents? Now it looks like I'm not being quite as efficient because I used to do, you know, with six and a half people. Now it's over seven. So think about different ways to, to do some of that stuff. And I apologize for the pace I'm going now. But um, last thing I want to talk about, and we'll, and we'll, we'll hold for questions, is rate setting. Um, again, most typically we're probably talking about water and sewer rates. Um, one of the least popular things that you do, one of the things that I, if there's something that I see communities uh, decide to sidestep more frequently than something else, it's this. Uh, and I strongly encourage you not to do that because um, there's a few things you should think about, right? One is if your rates are set improperly and frequently, it doesn't change the cost. It just changes who pays. And rates, the very fundamental foundation of rate setting is the people using that particular service pay for that service. And if I don't set it properly, that means somebody's paying too much and somebody's not paying enough. And it's just sort of inherently not fair, right? So we want to make sure that we're on an annual basis taking a look at our rate structures and understanding what goes into them. Um, when you're setting your rates, there's a, a case out there that governs this. It's called Bolt versus the City of Lansing. And it really, uh, what it basically says, I'm not going to get into all the, the, the nuts and bolts of this because of the, the time here, but the, the most important takeaway is the fees that you set have to bear a relationship to the cost of the service that you're providing, okay? So you can't just arbitrarily set water rates at $5 a gallon. Um, there should be some reasonable basis for uh, why we charge what we charge. Um, and any rate should be voluntary. So the voluntary nature is I hooked up to the water. That was my voluntary decision to do that. Um, match up those revenue sources with those expenses. Again, you know, if you're thinking about where where's the general fund money come from? Taxes, revenue sharing, fees to, to some degree, but not very much. Your water and sewer fund, in contrast, is funded by the users of the system, which, by the way, may be different and 
probably bear no relationship to the value of the property or any other benchmarks that the general fund would use. And you want to make sure you include all of the cost of what you're doing. So, for example, uh, some of these are easy, right? Am I going to charge reading meters into my water and sewer fund? Of course I am. But then when you talk to people about what about uh, processing water bills or paying for uh, the accounting or things like that, that's an appropriate cost that should be included. Now, some people look at that and say, well, we're already paying for that general fund, so I'm not going to burden my, my, my rate payers with that. But I would remind you to, to then go to that next step. The rate payers pay on a different basis than they pay their taxes, even, even if it's the same users. We could have properties of equal value, uh, and I own a party store and you own a car wash, and you're using tons of water and sewer, and I basically wash my hands and uh, you know do my business. And, and if you're going to allocate all those costs to the general fund, I'm bearing a disproportionate share of those costs. So I, I encourage you to really think strongly about that and make sure that you're getting that all those costs into that cost bucket. <clears throat> Again, do it annually. Um, I think it's it's important to do. Remember that they have to bear that relationship to the cost of the service, um, so that and it should be proportional. So again, you can't have a flat water rate, which is not the same thing as saying you can't have a minimum bill or some part of that rate that is a fixed amount. Um, you get this question a lot where, you know, they say we we have a fixed charge of twenty dollars because part of it is fixed, whether you use a drop of water or not. I had to have someone come read your meter. I have to have people there to, to collect your water bills. There are certain things that are fixed if we didn't sell any water. And so to have a fixed amount for that portion of the bill is appropriate. But the commodity charge itself should be proportional and based on, on a usage type charge. And so um, make sure that your structure follows that. And with that, I know I sprinted to the finish line. Um, I'm happy to answer questions, and, and uh, I can hang on a little long here if we need to. So, uh, Emily, fire away. Thanks so much, Tony. So we've got quite a few um, very specific questions uh, that have come into the chat. So before I get to those, I just want to make sure folks know where they can go for additional information if they're trying to access um, you know, resources on municipal finance reform, Headland Proposal A. So can you let folks know uh, what they can find on our Save My City website? Yeah, I mean, we just, a t you hit a lot of it, but we have a ton of information out there that helps you to understand a lot of the deficiencies in our system. Um, that information is targeted primarily at the system itself. Um, in addition, on our website, we have some, some additional sort of one-pagers on uh, bolt and things like that but um but yeah you can get just a ton of information out there if you want to better understand how our system works or doesn't work uh i encourage you to go there to save my city that's mi in the middle um dot org you can get that you can find that through our website as well mml.org all right so uh, a question that sort of is along those lines uh from kristen in battle creek she says she's had some financial discussion today with our city officials in the meeting statutory revenue sharing came up and how over the years Michigan government has lowered the amount going to local bodies taking it to fill gaps in state funding. How do we support or advocate for this to stop so local bodies can have their fair share of the revenue to invest in local areas. Yep. So uh, 
the most important thing any of you can do is to talk to your local officials. Understand, A, understand the issue on a level deep enough that you can have a meaningful conversation and share with them the decisions that you're having to be made locally, the impacts that it's having. These are important things. Don't ever underestimate the value of sharing those experiences with your uh, state officials that you guys have, have elected there. We, we are doing our part to educate them as well. Uh, this is a conversation that is ongoing. Uh, we have seen some moderate uh, increases in our in our revenue sharing. Uh, we're a far cry from where we, we know we need to get, um, and we're going to continue to do that. And the problem is because it's gone for 20 years, we know it's not going to be fixed tomorrow. Uh, and any change that we get means that something else either didn't get done or uh, they may cut somewhere else doesn't mean we don't fight to do those. And one of the things that we strive very hard to get people to understand is the importance, not only of the services you provide to your residents, but also the importance that local government plays in creating a positive economy. I mean, we can't have strong business environment in Michigan if we don't have strong communities. We're not gonna attract businesses, we're not gonna retain businesses. With businesses come the jobs and jobs come the people. So these things are all in, uh, tied together. That's a big part of our of our messaging, and we actually are uh, doing a lot of different things. We, we've created a, an Urban Core Mayors group. Uh, that group has created something with the, called the City Business Collaborative, which is working with some of our bigger uh, businesses and, and communities to can further convey that message. We talk to local chambers. I mean, we look for every opportunity we can to get people to understand this is not just a city issue. This isn't about this isn't an act of, of charity. This is about investing in our communities to create a stronger economic force here in Michigan. And so that's the message I encourage you to do. And a lot of those messaging points and things like that, again, would be at the Save My City uh, site. So I encourage you to go there to learn more about that. And one more question, if you could just answer uh, along the same lines at a, at a high level before we have to go so we can let folks move on with their day. But um, what strategies are being explored to reverse the negative impacts of Headley and Proposal A? Well, I, I mean, the answer is gonna sound very similar. I mean, uh, the biggest thing that we struggle with is educating of the legislature. And every couple of years we get to start over because we see a big turnover. Um, but so a big part of what we're doing is educating them on the deficiencies of this. The, the one thing that came out of the Great Recession, which was, I suppose, positive was See, we told you, <laughs> and we can now point to how this works and the economic understanding and impacts are real. And we have identified a couple of things that we think could be done statutorily. Uh, one is the removal of those popped-up values from the heavy calculation. Uh, we had legislation that I think got introduced in the House, but not the Senate at the end of last session to try to to have that conversation. The fact that it was introduced was a, was a huge, you know, movement and shift from where we've been. Uh, the other thing is allowing millage rates to move up and down. Um, again, when they implemented Proposal A, heavily used to go uh, move millage rates down when inflationary growth was greater than, or I'm sorry, when uh, property value growth was greater than inflation, but it could go up when it was less than inflation. We, we would love to see that restored um, so that we could have upward and downward mobility. Those two things don't, you know, fix everything, but they would restore uh, some economic tracking and 
ability for growth that we think is vitally important. And those are two things that we're working on uh, literally as we speak, that we're, we're continue to raise with leadership. And, um, you know, we haven't kicked out of their office, so that's positive. Well, again, I want to thank Tony for uh, joining the webinar today. So following today, we will email the PowerPoint links that we referenced to all participants, and we'll go back through the chat log to make sure we address the questions we didn't quite get to today. Uh, I think what we'll do is we'll make sure that everyone who is on our webinar has access to the answers to all of the questions so you can, you, you can see um, the information as a whole. Uh, in addition, it's been the case with our other webinars, this will be posted in multiple formats for you to review or share on our website at www.mml.org. A few other resources of note, each Monday at noon, we've been conducting our traditional Monday morning live as a new working from home series with our lobbying team via webinar. You can join those via Zoom or watch live on our Facebook page. We also have a few events coming up. Our Elected Officials Academy Virtual Core Weekender will take place February 26th and 27th. Registration is open for that. And our Capital Conference will be taking place March 16th and 17th, also virtual. Registration is open for that as well. Stay tuned for more information and other important webinar topics as we continue to provide you with timely updates and resources. Thank you all, and that concludes our session. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mml.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.